Welcome to today's edition of the Bible Class. Our teacher, Dr. Kenneth C. Hill, is teaching from the New Testament book of 2 Peter. You may send your questions by email through our website at whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. You may mail your questions to the Bible Class, care of WHCB, Post Office Box 5, Bluntville, Tennessee, 37617. And now, here is Dr. Hill with today's lesson. Welcome to the Bible class. We're beginning our study in the second epistle general of Peter, or second Peter. According to the King James Study Bible commentators, no book of the New Testament has been the object of more destructive criticism than second Peter. After the battles have been waged, it remains as the anvil that has worn out many of the critics' hammers. By its sheer endurance, 2 Peter demonstrates the truth of 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord endureth forever. Let's take a look at the historical setting as we begin our study in 2 Peter. Peter's second epistle was written within a year or a year and a half after Peter had written the first epistle. This was just a short while before his martyrdom on the cross in Rome. He anticipates his martyrdom in verse 14 of chapter 1, where he says, knowing that shortly... I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. This would date it between A.D. 64 and A.D. 67. He was writing to the same readers that he addressed in the first epistle. He knew his death was near, and he felt it necessary to remind his readers of their original salvation and the need to be continually involved in the growth cycle of the Christian. He wanted them to escape the false teachers that were about to descend upon them with his demise. Otherwise, the false teachers may deceive them, and they'll become like a dog returning to its vomit, or a pig that, having been washed, returns to wallow in the mud. You find that in verse 22 of Second Peter 2. Peter also wanted to remind his readers of the certain coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in his second advent. The false teachers denied that. Instead of honest doubts, they exhibited a willful ignorance. The false teachers were unaware that God keeps time by a different clock. With God, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. In Peter's time, not even one day had elapsed since Jesus had promised to come again. In our time, about two days have passed. Nor do the false teachers realize that the Lord is involved in a different program. He's not forgotten his promise to return, but he's currently bringing to repentance every person who will comprise the body of Christ. When the last person is saved, Jesus will return. Second Peter chapter 3 Verse 9. This letter called Second Peter 
contains numerous autobiographical references. Peter mentions his impending martyrdom revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. He reveals that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' transfiguration. He indicates that this is his second epistle, thus confirming the existence of the first epistle. He refers to Paul and to his writings or other scriptures. In addition, there is a great similarity between the second chapter of this epistle and the epistle of Jude. Peter speaks of the coming of false teachers in the future tense, whereas Jude speaks of them as being present. It's interesting that Peter would refer to Paul's writings as other scriptures, giving a stamp of approval to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Second Peter is graphically written with many outstanding features. It's a classic for showing that to escape depravity, you must become involved in the growth of a Christian. You must be in the growth cycle as a Christian. You also will be fruitful in your Christian life. You'll demonstrate the certainty of your calling and election. You'll have an abundant entrance into heaven, according to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. The letter also contains a superb passage explaining the infallible inspiration of Scripture and vividly describes the destruction of the present heavens and earth, telling the believer that the believer will ultimately receive the expectation of a new heaven and a new earth. Second Peter also demonstrates the equality of Paul's epistles, as we mentioned when he calls them other scriptures. Many who deny Peter's authorship of 1 Peter are willing to affirm his authorship of 2 Peter. 1 Peter has a polished literary style, but 2 Peter is rough and graphic. In Acts 4.13, the religious leaders observed that Peter and John were unlearned and ignorant men. They were not judging Peter or John's intelligence or writing ability, but merely acknowledged that they had not been educated in the rabbi's schools. This did not mean that they wrote poorly or that they were not smart or not educated. It just meant they were not educated in the rabbi's own education system. The two epistles differ in vocabulary and in style. But such discrepancies are also easily explained by their varied subject matter and purpose. No writer would use the same literary style and vocabulary for both a formal treatise and an informal letter. There's a lot of resemblances between 1 Peter and 2 Peter, enough to discount any concerns. Also, the author of this epistle identifies himself as Simon Peter, using the Aramaic form Sumian, rather than the more familiar Greek Simon, which occurs only in one other place. In Acts 15.14, the Aramaic Sumian is the name the Apostle James calls Peter. This argues against the theory of any authorship other than Simon Peter, and uh, it seems to lend credence to those who believe that what the Bible says 
is so. And that the second epistle of Peter, as well as the first epistle of Peter, was written by Peter. Now the first letter, the first epistle of Peter, was written to console the Christian. And the second epistle of Peter is written to warn the Christian. In the first letter, Peter was trying to encourage Christians who were suffering terrible persecution from those in society. In the second letter, he's warning them of the dangers that are within the church itself. Christians must have moral courage, even more than physical courage, to live the Christian life. It is the duty of the Christian to do right under all circumstances, without qualification, without hesitation. A Christian is never off duty. To stand up for truth is more often difficult than to go into battle. We see that when Joseph had to stand for the truth in Genesis 39.9, Nehemiah stood for the truth in Nehemiah 5.7 and 6.1 through 16. Daniel stood for the truth there in Daniel 1.8. Paul stood for the truth throughout in the book of Acts and in his letters. History is full of other instances as well. The church father Polycarp, Luther, Latimer, Wesley, Huss, they were never ashamed of Christ because they knew him, and they knew him to be who he was, the one who consoled them, the one who taught them, the one who saved them. When Paul was warning against the dangers to the Christian from within the church, he urged Christians to grow strong in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Christian knowledge is the best way to overcome the false teaching that was creeping within the church. And if it was creeping within the church in those early days of the church, it's now rushing in as a flood. We obtain knowledge of Christ through his word. Never, never, never neglect the reading of the word of God. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. So in 1 Peter, we learn much about suffering. In 2 Peter, we read much about knowledge. Now we know that if the knowledge of a Christian is shallow, then they will be a superficial Christian. That is, they'll have a wide understanding that's about a half an inch thick or a half an inch deep. And it's not very helpful in reality. Shallow knowledge makes superficial Christians. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. 
It's not what you believe that gives you strength, but it's whom you believe that gives you strength. Do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ? Peter knew that heresy often leads to immoral living. Christianity must have a creed if right conduct is to be assured. Leaders were using the church for money-making schemes. Leaders in the church were permitting wrongdoing of every sort. They were allowing sin in the local assembly of believers. The false teachers were laughing at the Lord's coming, making fun of it and saying, He's slack concerning his promises. He's not coming as he said he would. And the church could have easily quit looking for Christ and stopped looking for the blessed hope of his soon appearing. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the writer of this book, just as he was of 1 Peter. The first name, Simon, suggests his old, unstable nature. The second name, Peter, which has the meaning of a rock, suggests the new nature that Christ had given him, a rock being strong and true. He calls himself a servant, a bondslave, Slavery is the happiest life in the world when the slave has the right master. And of course, Jesus Christ is the right master for all of us. And there's only one right master in the universe. Jesus Christ. His bond slaves, his slaves, his servants know the only true meaning of freedom. We are given the freedom of Christ. Peter, being the apostle of hope, speaks again to the younger Christians in the faith. He urges them to look toward heaven while dwelling only for a season in this very bad world. He stirs up their pure minds by way of remembrance there in chapter 3, verse 1. He talks about the readers as those who have obtained like precious faith with us. And we remember how Peter's faith was kept through Christ's prayer for him. Christ said this in Luke twenty-two, thirty-two. He said, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This is how our faith can be preserved also. Christ himself, John 14, tells us that he prayed for us. Jesus Christ, when he was in this world, in the flesh, prayed for his own. Not just those that he had at that time, but he prayed for those that were yet to believe. That's you and me, my friend, how wonderful, how grand, how glorious it is to know that Jesus Christ, our Lord, prayed for us while he was in this world. Let's begin our reading in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 
the introduction, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What we see in verses 1 and 2 is where Peter identifies himself using that term sumion, sumion petra. It was an Aramaic sumion rather than the Greek Simon that was used there in the original. He described himself as a servant, that is, a slave, and as an apostle that was one sent with a commission, a job to do. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle. An apostle of whom? An apostle of Jesus Christ. He was writing this to the same people that he had written First Peter, and he tags it this way, saying, This is written to them who have obtained like precious faith. That is, precious faith. That is, faith in the precious one. Our faith is precious. The one we have faith in is precious. Our salvation is precious because our Savior is precious. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not have faith in Christ simply because we want to, will to, think we ought to. But we have that precious faith that is common to those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same faith. We all share in that same precious faith because of the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our very sin. So the beginning of the salutation is an identification of who he is and who he's writing to. And then he imparts to us grace and peace. He says it this way, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. For grace and peace to be multiplied, we have to know God. We have to know Jesus Christ. And we know from reading of Scripture throughout our studies of Scripture, we see that we know God only through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we have grace and peace, and it is multiplied. It's exponential. 
It's not just added a little grace, a little peace, but it's multiplied. It's exponentially given to us because we know God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have that we know Jesus Christ and therefore we know God the Father through him. You'll know that Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, definite article each time. No man comes to the Father except by me, except through Jesus Christ. That's how we come to the Father. And here we have grace and peace multiplied because of our knowing God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today for this edition of the Bible Class with Dr. Kenneth C. Hill. You may reach us by email by going to our website, whcbradio.org, and sending us an email on the Contact Us link. That's whcbradio.org. If you prefer to use the Postal Service, our address is the Bible Class, WHCB, Post Office Box 5, Blountville, Tennessee, 37617. That's the Bible class, care of WHCB, Post Office Box 5, Buffalo, Tennessee, 37617. You may also call us at 423-878-6279. Until our next Bible class program, we are trusting that the Lord will richly bless you as you serve Him.